You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Battle of Stalingrad has gone down in history as the deadliest battle of the Second World War, and one of the most brutal of all time. And yesterday, February 2nd, 2023, marked 80 years since this ferocious siege came to an end. I'm your host, James Rogers, and to mark this pivotal moment in history, I've invited author and historian Ian McGregor onto the Warfare podcast. Ian is the author of a new book, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, the hidden truth at the heart of the greatest battle of World War II. This includes the story of the 13th Guards Rifle Division, who held out against the German 6th Army in a building known as the Lighthouse in the centre of Stalingrad. A story that you're going to hear all about today. Enjoy. Hi Ian, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. Good to see you again. How have you been? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Good to hear. Now, the last time I saw you, we were debating the famous Yalta Conference of 1945 and deciding who got the best deal, Churchill, Stalin or Roosevelt. Today, however, we're going to go a little further back in history to the Battle of Stalingrad, a siege that raged between 1942 and 1943. In fact, it is this month, February 2023, that marks 80 years since the end of that battle. So it's great to have you here to mark the anniversary. But before we go into the details of the battle itself, I want to hear a bit more about the history of the city. What is it, Ian, that makes Stalingrad, or Volgograd as it's known today, so strategically important? So Stalingrad today is Volgograd, and back before the beginnings of the 20th century and the the Russian Civil War, before the Second World War and the communists taking control, it was called Tsaritsyn. That was its name from the medieval ages all the way through to the end of what we would call the Victorian age, and then we go into the 20th century and the Great War. It just happened to be a place, a village, like hundreds of other villages that were located, dotted along the two to 3,000 kilometer length of the Volga River, which bisects the country from south to north, goes from the Caspian Sea all the way up to north of Moscow. So it's an arterial route and obviously pre-industrialized era. It's where you do all your transportation of what ostensibly is at that time when it was just a village and then a town, all these thousands of square miles of arable land that grew the wheat, the breadbasket of the country. 
predominantly, obviously, southern Ukraine, but then it goes into Russia itself as well. So vitally important. But then obviously, as the industrial age does come on, and once the communists are in control by the 1920s onwards, that's when you get a real ramping up of what was a village into a town, and it turns into a major city. And it's not just a transportation hub, that's still obviously the case, but it's now a real centre of commerce and a centre for what will be Stalin, Joseph Stalin's massive plans, economic plans, to massively increase grain harvest in the area, but also the oil that they've now been channeling for the last few decades, I suppose, until the, the Russian Revolution had the communists in control. The oil, the valuable oil deposits that are in the Caucasus, that needs transportation too. So therefore, Tsaritsyn was one of several cities that became vitally important to this trade link. It changed its name from Tsaritsyn during the Russian Civil War to Stalingrad. That was because Stalin himself was in charge of the city during the Civil War, fended off one or two besieging white armies that were around it. And then once he'd taken control by the mid to late 20s, Obviously, a very savvy local communist leader who was in charge of what was then Tsaritsyn said, I know, let's change the name of the city to the boss. So that's why it was called Stalingrad. But then it just took on a, a life of its own because if it's named after the leader of the country, he's got these grandiose plans to obviously take this great leap forward to modernize the Soviet Union. They have to catch up with the West. He had these five-year plans. He had these big economic plans to modernize the country which would involve mass mobilization of forces, the privatization of agriculture with the kulaks, but also take these small cities, because they were small at the time, but massively expand them, but create these, what he would hope would be showpiece cities. And Stalingrad was going to be one of the first. So it's not just going to have accommodation for the workers that are working on the transportation systems that are dotted along the city, because the city's going to expand massively along the length of the Volga. It's not going to be turned into one kind of big homogenous lump that's going to spread north, south, east and west like most cities do. It's just going to hug the Volga for about 15 to 20 miles by the time the Germans arrived there in 1942. But he wanted to develop it. He wanted to architecturally develop it. So it's going to have these lovely boulevards and parks, lovely apartment blocks for the workers that were going to pour into the city that would then work in these massive factories that are going to be built to the north of the city. And ironically, these factories were funded by predominantly American money, some French, some British, but predominantly American money. The Ford Motor Company helped build the, tra the giant tractor factories that historians of the Battle of Stalingrad will know was some of the fiercest fighting towards the end of the battle. Uh, an enormous, uh, what they called a tractor factory that would produce the agricultural machinery that would not only be supplied to farm workers across the Caucasus and southern Russia, but obviously throughout Russia. That was the plan. There would be steelworks there, a chemical works to work and, and give the materials for the tractor factory. But obviously, as we know, as we saw in every country, especially Britain and the United States, as soon as countries go to war, and a big war, these kind of factories will instantly get turned over to the military. So by the time the first year of, of the Great Patriotic War, once Germany had invaded on the 22nd of June 1941, these factories would be pumping out military armaments because they were perfectly set up to do that. And that's what turned, I suppose, Stalingrad into a target, a military target for the Germans. So it's a transport hub, a fuel hub an industrial hub, a food hub. And if you've got command of Stalingrad, 
you've got a key foothold to take Russia and a way to supply your own troops, reducing that massive logistical train that harks all the way back to Germany. So take us to 1942. Is this exactly why Hitler orders it to be taken? Well, no, it was never supposed to be taken the way it was. It was part of the strategic plan of what would be Case Blue, Case Blau, which was Hitler's great gamble in the early summer of 1942. Barbarossa the year before, the biggest invasion in history, where he'd hoped to smash the Red Army and and defeat Russia in one campaign, as he'd done with France the year before. Obviously, it's a much bigger beast. It's it's massively larger than France or anything else he'd he'd conquered the year before. But even so, with 3.8 million men, I think it was, across three giant army groups, North, Centre and South, he'd hoped to smash Russia in that first year. Arguably almost did, but as everyone saw, they just didn't appreciate in the West the enormous uh, resources in men and materiel that Joseph Stalin was able to call upon. Although Russia had lost well over 6 million men, either killed or captured, lost the bulk of its tank armies in the West, lost the bulk of its air force in the West, it could still provide a sucker punch. So you had these continual small counteroffensives, which morphed into a what we would call the Great Winter Offensive of 1941, which again took the Germans by surprise, who were already you know, quite exhausted by the fighting to just get to Moscow, get to Leningrad, and then get into Southern Russia in the first year. So where we get to, because of Stalingrad, to get back to your question, is Hitler can't afford, uh, he hasn't got the troops or the armour or the planes to launch a similar attack in the following year across a, a completely broad front from the Baltic all the way down to the Caucasus. He knows he needs the oil. That's the thing he needs to keep his war machine going. That's the gold he needs. He's got the Ukrainian wheat because they've got the bulk of Ukraine already in their pocket. He's declared war on America in December alongside his ally Japan. So he's in the long haul. He's a strategist. He, he was a megalomaniac. He was a micromanager, but he was also a strategist. He knew his stuff there and he knew he needed the Russian oil. He thought if they had that, but if they could also destroy whatever armies he thought were left in southern Russia, he knew that they had more resources. He believed that they would cripple, if not defeat Russia, it would cripple them and it would give him at least a window of one to two years to then build up his armies again and then go the next step, but obviously guarantee that nothing's going to happen in the West. But like I said, Stalingrad was part of the plan. It was a, it was a four-phase offensive. It was first phase was going to break east to capture the transportation hubs of Voronezh, which then they could pivot 90 degrees and plunge south and then head into the Caucasus. And the next stage would be Rostov, which is the gateway to the Caucasus. Then turn left and get to the Volga. Not necessarily take Stalingrad itself, but deny the Russians, the Soviets, use of the river for supply. They could, like they did with Leningrad, they could besiege Stalingrad, bring it under artillery and Lusatha bombardment. But the priority for the army, Army Group South, was then to plunge south into the Caucasus and capture the valuable oil fields of Grozny and Maikop, and probably even go further south. But the thing was, yes, they might capture them, but if the Soviets might blow them up, equally, it denies that oil to the Soviets. 
So that's where we were. And as this plan, which was planned very well, as it starts to, as all plans do, as they start to unfold, as you then meet the enemy and realize that he's got his own set of plans, the Soviets were putting up a really big fight for strategic places. They weren't being encircled as they had done the year before, harder to capture, but they were, armies were appearing as the Don Front and the Stalingrad Front were putting up army after army after army that was coming on echelon that was had been protecting the center of Russia because Stalin was thinking, is Hitler going to attack my center again and, and take me there? So it's a game of chess. He's moving forces down to the south. So this great offensive, which did catch the, the Russians by surprise, the Soviets by surprise, was being met by fierce resistance. So the, the German army with their Axis allies, the Hungarians, the Italians, the Romanians, that this time we're going to help them with this great quest to capture this huge tract of land. They were coming under fire. So the great move down to the Caucasus was stalling, running out of petrol, running out of valuable fuel to keep the panzer columns going. The infantry are coming up under fire. The one thing that's working for them is that they've got aerial superiority. The Luftwaffe is doing its job and paving the way through this resistance that Stalin's commanders are putting up, blasting their way through. So by the middle of August, Hitler again has fired certain commanders from key positions because he thinks they're not following the plans. He's meticulously laid out the way he wants to have it. He's made the fatal decision to think, I want to try and get it all in one go. I'm going to capture Stalingrad with Army Group B going east and they'll secure the flank. And even though I'm not sending the bulk of the army for Army Group South down south to capture the Caucasus, they're good enough to take it. I can't believe the Soviets are going to put too much of a struggle. Now we've destroyed, we spent the best part of seven weeks, eight weeks of the, this offensive, destroying these armies that are being put up in front of us and we're beating them. We've destroyed at least two to 3,000 tanks that they put up in front of us already. Surely they can't have any more. And so he's thinking he can have everything he wants in one go, which strategically was the worst thing he could do. So by the time Army Group B with the 6th Army, the army that was called the Conqueror of Capitals because it was the elite unit that had won the Germans, Poland, then the Low Countries, then France. This was the army that was in the vanguard of Army Group B that found itself outside of Stalingrad looking upon the Volga by late August. Well, this seems like exactly the right time to go deep into the battle itself. I know that your new book is based around a key strategic building in the heart of of the city. Pavlov's house, which was situated on the front line and codenamed the Lighthouse. So tell us what life must have been like for the 13th Guards Rifle Division who faced off against this formidable 6th Army. Well, the 13th Guards arrived just as the city, the bulk of the city, the bulk of Stalingrad is on the western bank of the Volga. That's predominantly where it all is. It still is there today. If you go there, well, we, we might not be going there at the moment, but if you get a chance to go there, which I would say definitely go because I loved my trip there. The bulk of this, it, it, it hasn't really changed. On the eastern bank, that's where you've got various landing stages, you've got supply dumps and you've got villages and small towns. And then, then it's just miles and miles and miles, as far as the eye can see, of woods and plains and agricultural land. And then you're basically heading off. It's simplistic to say, but it's true. You're heading off into Asia. So on the Western Bank, that's where the city is. The old part of the city in the south, the new part of the city, which I was talking about, that had been designed in the 20s and the 30s with the apartment blocks and the boulevards and the department stores, all that kind of thing. And then the really important thing for the Germans, the factory districts that were pumping out all this military equipment, whether it's armoured planes, boats, T-34 tanks. So the 13th Guards really arrived just in, as we'd say, the nick of time, which kind of 
is repeated all throughout the main first two to three months of the battle. There was always another division that arrived on the east bank of the Volga, then straight across the Volga into the meat grinder to hold the Germans just as their latest thrust to capture the whole city. And they were barely 100, 150 metres away from the Volga to then say, we own the whole western part of the city. The very first time this happened was on the 13th to the 15th of September. That's when Sixth Army really pushes into the city. And as I talk about in my book, one particular division, the 71st Infantry Division, again, one of these classic rifle divisions of roughly, originally it would have been about 10 to 11,000 men with obviously all the ancillary units, artillery, logistics, etc. They crashed their way through the centre of the city, took the defenders by surprise. At that point, the city was very weak. The units that were defending the city, especially around the centre, were factory militia, security guards from uh, railway stations and transportation hubs, an NKVD security division. And then whatever left was left of the stragglers that were pouring into the city that were fleeing the steppe in advance of this German juggernaut coming towards them. They tried to hold them, but like I said, 71st Infantry Division was one of one or two divisions that managed to pierce the line and then made their, their way straight in a typical blitzkrieg fashion straight towards the river. So by the time the 13th Guards Rifle Division got there, they were ordered straight in because Stalin was apoplectic that when he was told there's Germans by the Volga in the centre of the city already, they pushed us out. And so Alexander, Major General Alexander Radintsev, the commander of the 13th Guards, when he arrived, he was told, get over there as soon as possible and retake it at whatever cost. He did that. This is portrayed in the film Enemy at the Gates. Jude Law, famously, is the famous sniper. I remember it well. There you go. Absolutely. I would argue, which I say in my talks, I would say that the ferocity of their assault, their riverborne assault, is accurate. As in, they were under heavy machine gun fire, heavy mortar fire, artillery shells, with some air assaults as well. So the carnage was pretty bad. They lost well over 1,800 men crossing the river, I think. And then in that first night's battle, it was a nighttime assault. But everything else in that film, when we won't go into it, it's just a Hollywood film. It's a feel-good film. Nothing of it's really true. So Redimsev, his men went over the first wave, which took the first regiment, the 42nd Rifle Regiment, commanded by Colonel uh, Ivan Ellen. They were armed, as they should have been. They were fully armed. Their men had submachine guns, rifles, plenty of ammunition, anti-tank rifles, etc. They went over, and they really did storm the embankment. And that's where you start to get this picture, which is what Stalingrad's famous of, is this ferocious hand-to-hand fighting, not just out in the open, but in what's ever left of the city in terms of rooms, house-to-house, floor-by-floor, etc. And you've got to remember, by the time Radimsev's men got there, so they got there in the afternoon and they can see the city, the city's ablaze because it's been systematically bombed over the last couple of weeks by the Luftwaffe that, as I said earlier, had aerial superiority. They could bomb the city at will. And the whole length of the city got completely and utterly devastated. By the end of the battle, 95% of the city is destroyed. It's in ruins. But what it did there was, as we all probably know, the, the people that have read about this battle, it does create perfect kind of battleground for the defenders because they obviously they can conceal themselves in the rubble. They can conceal themselves in a lot of the buildings that were in the center of the city and a lot of the buildings that were in the factory district. They'd been built 
with modern techniques, modern materials in the 20s and the 30s. So they've got steel girders in some a lot of the supports. They've got bunkers that have got steel girder supports as well. So they're the things that are still intact. And they're the things at both sides throughout this battle because it ebbed and flows constantly. They could turn them into mini fortresses. And that's where you get the large casualties because it takes a lot of men and a lot of firepower to try and take these mini fortresses. And the Russians and the Germans were adept at making these places very formidable targets to take. So that's why you've got such a high attritional rate of men on both sides. And that's why it's it's got well over 1.5 million casualties by the end. So yeah, the 13th Guards got there. They stormed the city. They pushed quite a way into the city. I, I spend a whole chapter just talking about the fight for the main railway station in the center of the city. And it was brutal and it lasted well over a week. But it was an ebb and flow between the 71st Infantry Division and the 295th Infantry Division. They were the predominantly the ones that were fighting against the 13th Guards. And famously, or maybe not so famously, your, your listeners might not know this, the 10,000 or so men that Radintsev took over over the next few days across the Volga into the city to fight, the losses of 13th Guards Rifle Division suffered throughout the battle is really a metaphor for any Soviet division that found itself over in the city, but also for the Germans as well. So Radimsev's men, he took over 10,000. By the end, uh, even though obviously he had lots of reinforcements, was recycled in to make sure his positions were reinforced, but less than 200 of the original 10,000 were left by the end of the battle. But the 71st, like I said, the 71st Infantry Division on the German side, they had, by the end, the surrender of the Kessel, they had about 193 men left standing that were combat fit, you could say, from the thousands that had gone in at the start of Case Blau. So both sides, it's a metaphor for the absolute destructive nature of this urban combat. Guardian, it sounds absolutely awful. We couldn't think of any worse place on earth to be. And I think I've said that before. I remember we had Professor Chris Bellamy on the podcast. He wrote the book Absolute War. And we did an episode on Leningrad, on the ice roads, on on just the near starvation from the siege, people eating frozen dogs, reports of cannibalism. I mean, was it the same in Stalingrad? Did things get as bad as it did in Leningrad? The siege didn't go on as long, but was the German siege able to completely shut off supplies? No. No, I mean, that, that was the big Achilles heel of General Paulus, who was in charge of Sixth Army. He's the guy... Is he the one that begs Hitler to let him surrender? At the end, yeah. Right yeah. at the very end, he's requesting that, can we surrender? But obviously, once they're surrounded, he's asking, can we break out? So a lot of the things he's asking for, he's denied. But that's the Achilles heel, that as long as the Soviets could have some kind of landing stage on the Western Bank, some kind of foothold on the Western Bank that could tie down the Germans, that was the key thing strategically for the Soviet high command. Because even as the Germans were taking the city in those first few weeks of September, in the Kremlin, in Moscow, Stalin was already talking to some of his key commanders like Zhukov and Rokossovsky and Vasilevsky about, well, actually, if you look at what the, the Germans are up to with Case Blau, their line is so overextended where they've plunged down into the Caucasus and come up to the Volga at Stalingrad. Their line is now well over a 1,000 kilometres long from where they started off. If they don't have the forces to protect this wide open flank, we have an opportunity here to 
give them a taste of their own medicine, cut through them on their flanks, and then surround as many troops as we can, a whole army, hopefully. So that was being discussed in September already. So like I said, it was part of the plan that the main two armies, or what was left of the main two armies that were defending the city, 62nd Army in the centre, commanded by Churkov, and then the 64th Army in the south of the city, that was holding off 4th Panzer Army in the south, commanded by uh, Shemilov. It was their job to just try and remain in the city, come hook or by cook. doesn't matter whether they're holding on to not even anything more than 100, like I was saying, 100 metres deep. At times it was like that. They would still be supplied. By hook or by crook, these armoured boats and, and whatever kind of boats they had, the Soviets would get across and, and supply them with whatever they could, but also take the wounded out and take reinforcements in. And again, that's where... If you go to the city now, that's why some of these big commemorative statues and they've got some of the armoured boats that were sunk, they've taken them off the bottom of the Volga and got them on plinths, giant plinths by the shore. It's to show that it wasn't just the soldiers that were the heroes of the, the defence of Stalingrad. The Volga flotilla was crucial in winning that battle too because they're the ones that, that lost so many men, so many boats, just doing the day-to-day -day task of taking these supplies, taking back the wounded, to the defenders of the city amid aerial bombardments and Luftwaffe attacks. It was merciless. And that's what I suppose Enemy at the Gates, the film, captures. It's just this merciless pummeling that they got. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? The Oracle certainly operated, certainly gave many thousands these prophecies, and they were taken seriously in most cases. What can be discovered from lost civilizations? There was a lot of volcanic activity, and in one of these sites called Quiquilco actually got covered with volcanic flows. And the early archaeologists, they used dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology. And was King Arthur actually real? Ambrosius is far less well known. It looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. We're talking about this, of course, in February and the fact that the, the siege was broken, the battle was won, if we can put it that way, in the February. So what impact did the winter have on this battle? Did the river freeze over, making it easier for the Soviets to resupply? And did that notorious Russian-Soviet winter have a toll on that 1,000 mile from tail to teeth supply line that the Germans had to keep moving. I mean, I remember that that Hitler was just moving people off the Atlantic Wall and moving supplies and, and arms and everything he could just to, to get as many troops up as possible. Did the winter play an important role in victory for the Soviets? Definitely to a degree, because like the year before, when you'd had the winter offensive or winter the small winter offences that we call the big winter offensive, yes, I mean, because obviously it prevents their motorised units functioning correctly, whether it's down in the Caucasus or whether it's around the Stalingrad front, because it wasn't, this front wasn't just the city itself, it stretched for, for tens of, well, probably 50 to 100 to 150 kilometres to the north and to the south. That's where the fighting was taking place. And that's famously why you've got the Romanians and the Hungarians on the flanks because more German troops were being pulled into the fighting into the city because the Soviets just weren't going to let go of it. But yeah, the the conditions definitely played their part. And by the time the winter really hits, where not overnight, but over the course of days at the beginning of, well, late October going into November, that's when it, it starts dropping down to the minuses, minus 10, then minus 15, minus 20. And I've been there when it's minus 20 standing by the Volga. And it is no joke. It's absolutely freezing. No, it's not for me. And if your rations are being cut and you're in the middle of bitter fighting and you have been for the last two months, I honestly don't know how they did it, both sides. But the Volga actually didn't freeze. It was a kind of huge ice flows slowly making their way. They didn't have the what had happened at Leningrad where you had the ice bridge across Lake Lagoda. That didn't happen. The Volga was, because it's a big, big river, I mean, really powerful river, you have to see it to believe how wide it is. So it's got that strength of, of current that just made sure that it just didn't freeze around where the city was anyway. So that's where the Russian supplies actually did come unstuck to a degree once those ice flows were, were taking hold. Because how do you get a boat through those ice flows? It's very, very difficult. And they were having to build bridges because the main bridge that they spent months building before the Germans arrived, the commander at the time, and, and Khrushchev was there as well, they panicked and thought, well, they might take the city. We have to blow up this bridge. We can't let them get across the Volga. They blew it up. And they came to regret that decision because that would have been perfect because they, by the time this was all happening and, and the winter had hit, there was no way the Germans had the strength to actually get across the Volga anyway. That bridge would have been perfect. But what they did do was they had massive pontoons that they were building 
that was slightly, you know, that could roll and, and sway and move with the current and constantly was having to get rebuilt as well or, or repositioned. And that was the way that they kept supplies coming. But there was a point where, if you read the reports, Chukov is demanding more food for his troops because famously we talk about once the Germans were surrounded after Operation Uranus had encircled them, that they were going to have to fly in supplies because their troops were starving in the city. It was equally the same for the Soviets and the 62nd and the 64th armies defending the city. They were on really reduced rations too because of what was going on in the Volga behind them. They weren't getting the, the supplies that they normally had. And so the Russians were very expectant that once the airlift happened and the airfield started to fall one by one and, and the Luftwaffe was forced to make airdrops, the Soviets were very canny and they had dummy fires going off near the German lines to say, well, we're Germans too, drop us supplies. And it did happen several times. So yeah, it was bad for both sides, but the history books always focus on how bad it was for the Germans and their rations getting lower and lower and lower. There's a reason, I should add, there's a, there's a reason why so many Axis, predominantly German POWs, died in the first few months of surrendering at the end of the battle. Because like I said, 90,000 of them went into captivity and there was at least 50,000 of them dead by the summer. They were very emaciated because they'd been on such low rations. But they couldn't be fed because the Soviets didn't have it to give anyway, because they had been on such low rations. Yeah, no, we had an episode on life in the gulags for those soldiers and the officers, and yeah, truly awful time. And they spent so long in the gulags, those who survived, of course, from the 50s into the 60s. But it sounds like this battle, Ian, was fought on a knife edge, with the Germans on the cusp of victory, time and time again pushing for that river. But what do you think was the actual decisive factor, that turning point? Was it just pure attrition and the horror of urban warfare, and the fact that the Red Army had more bodies to put in harm's way as, as long as they could get them across the river? Yeah, I mean, I think it was at the beginning of battle, I think it was timings. So I think the good thing the Soviets did at the beginning of the battle as the Sixth Army's approaching is... They first famously, if we, if we remember the photographs of the, the panzer commanders sitting on the top of their tanks and they're right by the Volga and the sun's setting and they're looking through it and they think that the war might be over. We finally might have broken them. Isn't this amazing? Look, Asia's across there. And you get those photos and that, that was heavily publicized by German propaganda as well. But what those photos hide is at the beginning of the battle in the north where that took place, that's where Paulus's army was absolutely slammed time and time again by Soviet counter-offensives that were in places, and a huge amount of tanks were used, in places almost suicidal. They just were kept battering, battering Paulus's northern flank. And so, again, that stopped him almost like a game of chess. He's thinking, well, I can't en masse rush the city and take it like I planned to. I've got to now denude some of those forces and push them to the north because I'm just getting time after time after time again, I'm being attacked heavily by Soviet armor and infantry attacks on my flank. I must protect that. And so that's where you've got this swing of men and material going to the north. And that stops his ideal timetable of how he would take the city. And because that happened, it means it slows down the timetable. It gives the Soviet defenders in the city time. And also, as we talked about earlier, you've then got all these other reinforcements on echelon coming down from central defenses of the Soviet Union. Redimpsev's 13th Guards was one of them. It gives them time to actually get to the eastern shores of the bank to then be fed into the battle. But from then on, once the lines are set and the north stabilised going into September, and Paulus is thinking, right, I've stabilised the, the north, 
The South is in the bag. The 4th Panzer Army is coming up from the South. We've taken the South of the city pretty much already. I now just have to take the centre of the city and the factory districts. That's where he comes up second best because it doesn't matter what he does. He tries at least four major offensives in the city from September through to early November before Uranus then kicks in on the 19th of November. That's where he's trying these assaults. And as you said at the top of the show, time and again, He's going back to his army group B commander, Vikes, who's then going back to the main Supreme headquarters to say, we need more men, we need more armor, we probably need more Luftwaffe support too if we're going to take the city. And it's it comes to him in dribs and drabs. He can't smash the city ideally like he wanted to as a sledgehammer. And that's why you have this attritional warfare. And that's why you have this house-to-house urban combat fighting. And the Soviet commanders and Stalin himself are prepared to do anything to hold the city. And if that means, famously they said it, time is blood. And that's why it's such a meat grinder. And that's where, as I say in the book, in some instances in the fighting for the centre of the city, certainly, you look at the casualty list on both sides. And in September, for instance, the casualty ratio, German to Soviet, is for every one German soldier killed, 16 Soviets are killed. Wow. That's an incredible ratio for any army to try and hold the line against an enemy. But they did it because they had so many men that they could push into the battle. I couldn't imagine any other nation that could absorb so many losses. And I suppose that that's what makes urban warfare so unique is its sheer brutality. And to put the battle into perspective, around 2 million civilians and combatants were either killed, wounded or captured between September 42 and February 43. And and given all of this and the sheer importance, the importance of Stalingrad strategically and to the outcome of the war, how is it remembered in Russia today, especially, of course, as Russia wages its offensive war in Ukraine as it wages war in Europe once again? Well, yeah, I mean, I think during the war, what we can see when we look at it is that Barbarossa in the first year was stopped in its tracks. And that was telling Hitler. That was basically, for Hitler anyway, and the German army, that was, they couldn't win the war on the terms that they wanted to win, as in in that first year. But with Stalingrad the following year, I think ultimately what happened was the Germans were going to lose the war. They'd had a whole army crushed and they'd had their, their hoped for offensive to capture the oil thwarted. And they barely got out of the Caucasus by the skin of their teeth and then managed to hold the line around the Ukraine. And then by Kursk, six months after Stalingrad, and the biggest battle in history so far, and the defeat there, uh, and that was a crushing defeat for the Germans, that was showing that the defeat the Germans were going to suffer was going to be a total defeat. It wasn't going to be on Hitler's terms. It was basically going to be the Soviets, if they wanted to, are going to be in Berlin and probably further west as well. And so to Russians today, I would impress upon the listeners as well that to a man, most of them are against this, what's going on in the Ukraine. They see the deep irony of what's going on and calling the denazification of Ukraine just bizarre. But I think what we'll see in the celebrations and the commemorations that are going to happen later this week, and Putin's going to give the main speech, is the connection. This weird link that the, the regime at present want to have to just wrap the country in this nationalistic trope, you could say, of This is a continuation of how the nation suffered in the Second World War. This is a continuation of our struggle, the nation's struggle, to fight uh, Nazi forces in the West that are trying to stop Russia being Russia, you could say. But the irony is, again, from the research that I've done, is well over 
six to seven million Ukrainians fought in the Red Army. I mean, a great many of them fought for the Germans, obviously, and we all know that, but millions of Ukrainians fought and died for the Red Army. Ukrainians suffered more casualties, dead and wounded, than the United States, Britain and France combined. And that, crucially, they fought at Stalingrad. Thousands of them died, fought and died at Stalingrad. So it's just deeply, deeply sad. Well, and, you know, this is the importance of getting history right, isn't it, Ian? Mm, Is mm. all of this absolute nonsense about denazification and everything else. It was hundreds of thousands, I think, who died at Stalingrad who were Ukrainians. And like you said, Mm. millions that served in the Red Army itself. And it's definitely something to bear in mind as we all listen around to Putin's speech on the anniversary. But thank you so much for your time, Ian. Tell us, where can we read more? What is the name of the new book? So the book is The Lighthouse of Stalingrad. It's been three years of work. And it's what I wanted to do was just drill down, if you like, from this massive strategic battle of millions of combatants to just two basic elite units that opposed each other in the center of Stalingrad that were there for the whole battle, for the whole four and a half months. And what happened to them? Who fought with them? Who were their commanders? And it tells a very, very uh, human story, I think, and one that hasn't been told before. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time. We're going to put a link to your new book in the show notes. And you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you're interested in American history, don't forget to check out our sister podcast, American History Hit. It's hosted by Don Wildman and has a mix of episodes on everything from Downton Abbey, The First Americans, The Oregon Trail, and The First Thanksgiving. Follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. 
So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.